So the progress of redemption in the book of Genesis. So I draw your attention to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Genesis two fifteen to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The first point here in the book of Genesis is this idea that humans have been designed to have a growing, consequential, enriching, life-giving relationship with God. Humans have been designed to have a growing, consequential, enriching, life-giving relationship with God. So where was man placed? He was placed in the garden. Where's the garden? What was the garden designed for? Some of you have studied ergonomics in school. You recognize that that is sort of human engineering, this idea that we we design things for the people that are actually going to use them. No doubt some of you have used tools and you think, well, this has been designed for someone without articulating thumbs or something like that. I don't know. But nonetheless, when you look at the garden, uh, you see that uh, it is a place that has been designed for God. The garden is God's place. Uh, And he invites mankind into it for an intimate relationship with him that is intended, right, to be consequential, to be growing, to be enriching, and to be life-giving. But that's not the way modern science, obviously, views man. Modern science views man uh, in a number of ways. One of those ways is an intruder that man would be an intruder to the earth. There actually is a society uh, that uh, is designed uh, to hasten the extinction of mankind because the idea is that man is just, he just messes up the planet. Now, no doubt, humans have done a dandy job of making a mess of things, as it were, but nonetheless, uh, this planet has been you know, designed, obviously, for, for God, but also for mankind. Some see man as an opportunist, as uh, just one that, uh, you know, walks along, sees how he might uh, uh, do this or that, or they may see man as a survivor. Some view life as an eat-or-be-eaten scenario. But you see, the Bible reveals that mankind has been created intentionally for something very, very different than that. And that the primary aspect of our lives is one uh, that actually pivots toward our Creator, and toward relationship that's consequential with him. We could go no further than the story of the two Lamechs in Genesis chapter 4 and 5. And uh, I didn't really recall that these two Lamechs were different people, but in Genesis chapter 4, you have the line of Cain. In Genesis chapter 5, you have the line of Seth. And you see the stark contrast between the line of Cain and the Lamech there, and the line of Seth, and the result of that. Lamech says in the line of Cain, right here in chapter 4, verse 25, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So what Lamech really reveals here is that power is his God. 
And this, this should be viewed as a tremendously arrogant statement uh, by Lamech. This idea that, no, actually, uh, power is that thing which really jazzes Lamech. That is the Lamech of Cain. Uh, that, that he really falls into place with one who would follow him, Nimrod. And Nimrod is one who, who had a reputation for gathering men to himself and drawing them away from the faithfulness of God. Yes, an expression of power. Yes, an expression of leadership. But one that is far varied from that great purpose that God has created us. That we would have fellowship, consequential fellowship with God. Now, when you look at uh, the... Descendants of the Lamech that came from Seth, you see that Noah was born of him. And Noah, of course, uh, lived in those days and marked really in a number of ways with Enoch those days when men began to call on the name of the Lord. Man has been designed to live in fellowship with God, to be a worker and keeper of God's garden in fellowship with him and his followers. With a continual sense of God's presence. So, a question for us, how do we cultivate a sense of God's presence in our lives? How do we, how do we uh, really increase our own recognition that God is not only omnipowerful, but He's omnipresent, He's everywhere, He sees everything. God is with us. Certainly, He was created, or rather, humans were created with this in mind. As we look here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, was mentioned in the reading here in chapter 2. This probationary test regarding eating of the tree underscores God's intent that humans obey God through personal devotion to Him, not based on sensory reasons. So I draw your attention to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So what we have here initially right out the gate uh, as humans is this idea that there are decisions that are being made, right, that, uh, that are not on the basis of a consequential growing relationship. Eve made a decision that was of a moral aspect, had she chosen the good and rejected the evil from reasoned insight, it would have been a good thing. It would have been a better thing if she'd taken into account the regard of the nature of God, and of course the best thing if she had acted out of a personal attachment to God without the other reasons. The pure delight in obeying God adds a tremendous value to obedience. Eve believed Satan. She believed that God's word was unreliable because his motives were selfish, that only he understands and doesn't want other people to understand. So what we see here is that God has created the universe with a moral framework. A moral framework. Our initial point that God created uh, humans such that they would have a consequential, growing, uh, progressive relationship with Him. We also see, secondly, that He's created the universe with a moral framework. Now, now what does that mean exactly? Well, children, uh, do you feel bad 
when you do the wrong thing? Do you feel bad when you do the wrong thing? You might ask yourself the question, why is that? Why is it that why is it that I don't feel very good or I feel uncomfortable or when I when I disobey mother and father, I I sort of want to hide from them. I don't I don't really want to see them right away. Or I, or I have something uh, I I have something that I that I know that that they wouldn't want me to have. And so the idea here is that God has created us with a real sense of what is right and wrong. Now that that sense isn't perfect. It has to be informed and shaped by the Word of God. But the reality is, is, that, uh, is that God has made us and He's made this world to have a moral framework. Uh, so, so that means that while you, you know, there are many around us that would say, well, why does it matter what I do? Or, or there's nothing that's right or wrong. Or I, I select what is right or wrong. Or this concept of ethic is only a situational thing. That that which is right uh, is that which is agreed upon by the, by the people that populate the earth at a certain time. And those things change over time and so forth. And no doubt you're, you're uh, cognizant of some of those ideas. But we can escape. This idea that God has created the universe and He's created us with a moral paradigm. And this is, this is something that, uh, that, that bears down upon us when we work against the ways of God. Uh, the Bible says uh, that, that we cannot push against Him, that He, that he will have His way. In fact, uh, that which is moral and upright will always ultimately be that which is done. Justice will occur based on what God says is right and wrong. God has designed mankind after His own image. The Bible reveals that. Which means a number of things, not least of which is the ability to reason, to distinguish one thing from another, to make moral assessments, to create things out of available materials. But in the arena of right and wrong in particular, the Bible reveals that God has already set the standard for that. You see, God has already stated what is right and what is wrong. He has not left us to select what is right and what is wrong. He's already declared that. So this is an aspect of the moral paradigm. It's one thing to ruminate over the application of God's standard in a difficult situation. It's another thing altogether to ruminate over whether we'll do what God says or whether we even know or remember what God has said. How many of you have tried to explain away a certain action that you're persuaded is actually wrong. You, you may have some pretty elaborate sort of mental gymnastics going on in your head to kind of help you sort of justify things that God's Word has declared as wrong. There, uh, there's a string that seems to run through the current evangelical culture, this idea of tentativeness, of this uncertainty. Well, I can't really know for sure, right, this idea. But the reality is, is the Bible is quite clear on the things that we encounter. 
the Bible uh, is, is, is quite clear on those things which would give us the ability to make moral assessments. The real problem that we have is that we don't remember what the Bible says or that we don't know what the Bible says. We don't understand what the Bible says. That we've not done diligence to, to understand what the Lord has said to us. And we, of course, pay the price for that as well. Most of us have had the experience of emphasizing what appear to be uncertainties in God's Word, using these perceived uncertainties as loopholes to make us feel better about not doing what traditionally has been considered obedience to the Word of God. The fall of mankind highlighted the principle that Satan, our flesh, and those around us will insist to themselves and those around them that there's such uncertainty and even suspicion in what God has said that we must reason for ourselves the moral dilemmas of life. God's design was that through a real, living, growing, affectionate attachment to Himself, mankind would delight themselves in the purposes for which God created them. And man's happiness would be directly derived from this affectionate attachment. Parents, all of you have had the experience when you've told your child to do something and they remain stationary. And it appears that they're actually working out in their minds whether they're going to do what you tell them. Right? And it also seems, as they begin to speak for themselves and enunciate what it is that they're thinking, that they're actually working out in their minds whether they're persuaded what you tell them is right or wrong. You see... And you have recognized, and no doubt you've entered into the frustration, uh, and you have, I expect, been frustrated over this idea that they would even go so far as to question your authority, such that you would then require them, or that they would feel the need to think about and begin to measure on a moral standard what it is that you've told them to do, right? And you likely have done that yourselves as an adult. You have you have measured, um, you have measured the things that those in authority over you have said, and that is a very very good thing. That's a very good thing for you to measure uh, what what it is, and and this is something that our our own nation has been reeling over, particularly has been accentuated over the past two and a half years with COVID and with other things with these mandates. Is what is tyranny? What is right authority? What is morally upright? These are questions that we should ask. However, when we're talking about God and God's authority, when we shuffle, when we slow drag our response, our obedient response to God, uh, and we call that patience, Or we call that discernment. You recognize what it is you're doing, right? You're questioning the authority of Almighty God and saying that you're working out the moral reasoning. Let me tell you, do you think that God is happy with you when you begin to work out whether you should tell the truth, for instance, and obey the ninth commandment? When you're sort of you're grinding through the results and the possibilities of all that all that's going to potentially happen when you simply tell the truth, you you've ever done that? What 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 are we doing when we do that? 
We're, we're saying uh, that somehow we know more about the moral aspects of the universe than God does. We're, we're, we're saying, well, you know, God, you've given us this, this regulation uh, that we are persuaded is very good for us. It's just that we're not, we've gotten ourselves into a situation where it seems that it doesn't really apply. Or we need the provisos. We need, we need, uh, what we need is commandment 9.1. I think, uh, or 9.2 maybe for us to understand. But see, the Bible again reveals to us that the world has a moral paradigm as opposed to any other, that of survival. Richard Baxter has said it well. Richard Baxter says, even regarding the Ninth Commandment, that sometimes we overvalue life. We overvalue life on this earth. And this is something that's very, very difficult for us in a risk-averse society to understand. That we will gloriously delight ourselves and enjoy our relationship with God if we continue to suppress our perceived danger and risk from simply obeying the simplicity of the truths of God's Word. We see in Genesis three sixteen through 18, as God speaks to Adam and Eve, that curses come based on ethical behavior. The universe has a moral paradigm. Men and women still enter into their creation purpose of the cultural mandate, but it will involve toil in their individual spheres. So we've discussed the cultural mandate or the, the mandate of dominion, this idea that God has intended that mankind sling his hoe over his shoulder and go out into the howling wilderness and turn it into the garden of God. That hasn't changed. What did change in the fall was that now it's harder. Now it's more difficult. But what also we can benefit from is a greater dependence on God in that. A greater dependence on God. Thirdly, the relationship humans were designed for with God is the only way to enjoy a purposeful, durable, eternal life. You want to delight yourselves in a future of eternity? You want, to, you want to know when eternal life begins? It's not when you die. It's when you're born again. Eternal life begins when you're born again. Our union with Christ, right, brings us into the realm of an eternal living with a loving, affectionate Father and a Holy Spirit and a warm, loving brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the relationship that humans were designed for with God is the only way to enjoy purposeful, durable life. I draw your attention to Genesis 4, verse 26. Genesis four twenty-six: To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. With Seth and the birth of his son Enosh, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Perhaps this growing wickedness of the earth inclined them to see that they needed God. In this, God has intentionally selected the line of Seth to bless them. More particularly to the sons of Noah, we see that Shem is drawn out as the one selected. And so you've heard of uh, Semitism. You've likely heard it in its negative aspect, anti-Semitism, but this word Semite or Semitic is a direct association to the word Shem. It's, it's all a reference to Noah's son, 
Shem. So this line that God has selected out is the line of Shem. Ultimately, we see has been expanded to a spiritual line of election. I draw your attention to chapter 5, verse 24. As we continue on, the descendants of Noah, which says here in 5.24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch's translation to heaven reveals where communion with God is restored, deliverance from death is bound to follow. Where communion with God is restored, deliverance from death is bound to follow. So we could ask the question, uh, we recognize, we're familiar with the story, you're familiar with the story, that God told Adam and Eve the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that they decided sensory ideas were more important than the revealed Word of God. In other words, their look at something and their own personal declaration of something that is right isn't the same thing as a declaration that God, their Creator, has made. When they came to understand that, death occurred. They no longer had eternal life. But that was restored, and the only way that can be restored is through a living relationship with God. So we see that right here in Genesis. That's not a creation of the New Testament. right? It's not a new idea that the Lord Jesus had. We have it right here in Enoch. We have it, we have it revealed to us in the line of Seth. Right? This idea that if I am to enjoy an eternal relationship, a living relationship, a life that is eternal, for God has made us that way, it's revealed also in a number of places, not least of which is Ecclesiastes, we were made for eternity. There must be a restoration of that relationship between God and man. A living, consequential relationship. We find that right here in the book of Genesis, in chapter 5. In 6.9, we have the same idea here. 6.9, the Bible uh, says very simply, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. Now, it's appropriate that you ask the question, okay, uh, so which came first? Noah walking with God or God drawing Noah into relationship with himself? Again, as we continue to look at the Scriptures and we see how God explains this to us, we understand that our living relationship with God is something that is is sometimes referred to as monergistic. This idea that God takes the initiative. He's sovereign in all of these things, right? So Noah wasn't a beauty spot in the eye of God because of his righteousness. Okay, God placed in the heart of Noah an affection for God and for the things of God. And so then Noah, of course, was righteous and blameless, as was Abraham and those that followed. Not in that they were perfect, but that they entered into evangelical obedience, that they entered into gospel obedience. They were faithful as they grew in their walk with the Lord. I draw your attention to chapter 6, verse 11. In the story of Noah and the flood, you're familiar with how the earth was corrupt, recorded here in verse 11, in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 6.17, the Lord reveals, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall 
die. Now there's a principle here. And this principle is that good cannot push back the darkness. Noah was a righteous man. And how many people were on that ark with him? Apparently there was Mr. and Mrs. Noah, Mr. and Mrs. Shem, Mr. and Mrs. Ham, and Mr. and Mrs. Japheth. That was it. The good couldn't push back the darkness minus the redeeming, living hand of God. Right? So this is an important declaration here. And, and we, we all want, right? We, we want for that. We live our lives often with this paradigm that good will prevail. Well, my, off, my, 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 uh, my master has authorized me to tell you that that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because it isn't mere good that will prevail. It is a good associated with the living relationship that Christ that will prevail. It will prevail over death and hell and all of those things. He has given to us the power to live a life faithfully in the midst of a dying generation. If good is to push back evil, which it certainly can, the Bible reveals that the gates of hell will not prevail, that they will fall away, if you will, with the kingdom of God. It must, of course, be associated with a living relationship. Altruism is a good thing. Doing good, doing the right thing is a good thing, right? But if we're to see the Lord work, it will be in association with the Lord in that. Another principle we see here that while man has certainly earned the eternal judgment of God, this judgment cannot cure man's sins. And God is interested in curing man's sins. Judgment has come, right? The flood certainly was an expression of God's judgment. The Tower of Babel, the dispersion of the Table of Nations, was certainly uh, an expression of God's judgment. And what we find in the Bible uh, is it was never God's intention to cure the sinfulness of man by judgment. It hasn't worked. Why hasn't it worked? Because that wasn't the purpose of judgment. The purpose of judgment wasn't to cure man's sins. Our Redeemer has that purpose, right? The law of God, you see, was never set before mankind as a standard by which he could earn his own righteousness. Now let's look at chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11, God says to Noah, I'll establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, the flood was a right expression of God's justice and judgment, but God's redemptive purpose is not ultimately found in judgment, right? It's found in redemption. Let's look at 12, chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Now it is right for us to see this as another expression of the evangelion, of this idea that there is a Redeemer coming, right? We saw that in Genesis chapter 3. With this idea, we see it again here in Genesis chapter 12, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is expanded, right? Now we're not really... The the Messiah, uh, if you will, will certainly come through this line of Judah that is protected, and it's it's a fascinating study just to look at the sweep of Genesis to Revelation and see the physical seed of the Lord Jesus Christ survived through all of those iterations, right? But what we see even here in Abram is that no longer, we're, we're already put on notice right here in Genesis chapter 12 uh, in other places that no longer is this redemption limited to the Jews, right? It's no longer limited to the physical seed of Abram, no longer. He's not even had his seed yet, right? And we're already told that this is far, far larger uh, than, than that seed that comes out of Abram. And what we see in 12 verses 1 through 3 is that mankind's relationship to God is initiated by God. It's not based on any action of man within, with the framework of blessing man through covenantal promises which also exalt the glory and love of God. Our Creator and at the same time rightly humbles man and proves his dependence on a loving God. Now, this is a very interesting point. So what we see here, and we think of how God entered into the picture with mankind. What did that look like? Well, it, it may be, children, it may be in your mind that God came initially to mankind, to Adam and Eve, to Abram, we see here, uh, with demands of righteousness. But that's not, what, that's not what we just read in the Bible, though. Right? What we see is, is that God initiates His relationship with mankind with promises. Right? With promises. I will be your God. I will bless you. These sorts of promises. This is a very, very important idea that we see here in the Scriptures. And what we can look at, particularly in uh, antiquity, in those people that dwelled on the earth along with those who were called God's people, is that what we see in the Judeo-Christian tradition, what we see in the Scriptures, is that the religion of the Jews, and ultimately the religion of us, those who have followed and fulfilled the Jewish religion, it has been imposed on us by God. We didn't make this up. Right? That's a very, very different relationship than what you see in the false gods. The false gods, their relationship and their, their, uh, their rules, if you will, are quite different. Why? Well, because humans made them up. You see, the Jewish people were continually trying to cast off the things of God. They were trying to cast off His requirements. They were uninterested in His promises, right? They didn't want dependence upon God. They didn't want that. Well, again, that's a, that's a perfect example and a way for us to understand, oh, oh I, I understand now. This, this whole thing wasn't the creation of man. It was the creation of God. God is the one who has levied this. He, he is the one we've already talked about, uh, and, and we chuckled a little bit when, with uh, the illustration of William Wilberforce when he said, do you know how inconvenient it is when God calls a man to himself? You know how inconvenient you know how inconvenient it is for God to impose his will on man. Well it it is his desire and intent that it changes everything. Everything is changed for the better. But what we understand is and this is so we've just looked a little bit at this concept of of unconditional election or sovereign election, but what we also see is this idea of irresistible grace. 
Irresistible grace. And, and irresistible grace may bring to mind, it may bring to mind a toddler that's kicking and screaming after a 12-hour drive. He doesn't want to get in the car anymore. Is that your picture of irresistible grace? Because that's not the biblical picture. Right? The biblical picture of irresistible grace is that God changes our heart. That, that, that even unknowingly in ourselves, He changes our desires, our tastes. He gives to us an affection for Him and for His Word and for His people. This is what happened to Abram. It's what happened to Noah. It's what happened to those that followed. Imperfectly, yes. But we see that right here. This is not an invention of the Apostle Paul. It's an invention of Almighty God. And this is what, this is what we see in the book of Genesis here. God reveals that redemption converts men to a desire and value the relationship with God over His good gifts. We look at verse 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. You can uh, look at chapter 17 in Genesis as well and see this promise, but uh, when you do the math there, you figure out that that, uh, Abram was only 75 in Genesis chapter 17. He waited 25 years for Isaac. It's appropriate that you would ask the question, why so long? Well, we see a significant principle here. You see, if God had immediately given these gifts... What we understand is we would get into the same situation that we now unfortunately are in, and that is this, that we often are inclined to value the gifts of God more than God Himself. And this is what we see in the patriarchs. The patriarchs of old valued their relationship with God more than the gifts that God gave them. There was a, there was a tremendous contentment ultimately, that we see in the life of Abraham with his relationship with God. He was so thankful, obviously, that he didn't have to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac. But what we see here, ultimately, that the, the revelation of the consequence of that was a validation that Abram and God were very close, based on what Abram, what Abraham uh, had obeyed God with. God reveals... Genesis reveals that redemption converts men to desire and value relationship with God over His good gifts to us. The progress of redemption in the book of Genesis. Let's pray.